listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Sensenig. I use she, her. And I'm Julie Hoke. I use she, her. Welcome to our show. Glad to have you here. I'm excited. Later on the show, my friend Ken Myers, who wrote a book called Let's Talk About Hell and Salvation and How We Got It Wrong. We're going to talk about both of those ideas. We're going to pack them into one interview. Hell and salvation, hell and how we got saved. And I think it's really good. I hope it helps people learn new ways to think about the Bible and Jesus beyond what we think of as like um, traditional or even evangelical ways. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Ken's a good friend of mine. But first we're going to start with talk back. That's it. Talk back we do in Circle of Hope after we offer a message. The people talk back to us and then we try to mimic that dialogue here. So I guess I'm going to keep talking. I'm sorry. Because they talk about came from me. So my friend texted me and we was listening to the last the last episode which had Dr. Jim Getz on it. And during the part about spiritual show and tell, what's been nourishing our soul, I mentioned um Aya Khalil's book, The Arabic Quilt, which has this uh character named Kanzi who is an Egyptian immigrant and trying to fit in and they describe breakfast in a special way. And I read the passage to y'all and then I started crying. Or like, I don't know, if, uh, Rob, the, this person, I guess Rob, I'll just say his name, said, I appreciate your vulnerability because that was it, right? It was not in just sharing the idea, but like the, the feelings that come with it. And it reminded me that uh, sometimes, I guess this sounds pretty obvious, but sometimes it isn't just like what you say, but like the emotion behind it is where the power of it is. Mm-hmm. How personal it is is where the power is. Yeah, and I've been learning that. What do y'all think about that? Mm. Totally. You shared yourself. <clears throat> that was a piece of yourself. I think that you were seeing reflected in that book. And mm. that level of vulnerability is more connective sometimes than the best points or the well-crafted sermon, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the story of you, Johnny, and your culture, and, and you gave, you offered a little window of insight into you, and yes, it was beautiful. This book I wrote is out now called Jesus Takes a Side, and some of the people have told me the power of it has been in the personal stories I've shared. Which is kind of, I guess, kind of surprised me um, that there's a lot of personal stuff in there. Or even like I give a talk and they're like, oh, you shared so many nice personal stories. And like those that, I'll be honest with you, that isn't exactly how I work in terms of like what helps me. And somehow I'm surprised when it like helps someone else Mm. because it's like horrifying, right? for me to be vulnerable because this one host said to me you make all these personal arguments and the personal is impossible to counter and you know the sad part is that's not true sometimes you can share your Mm -hmm. heart and someone can just say no i don't believe you Mm -hmm. that's happened to me right like Mm -hmm. so it's not it's not foolproof you could Mm -hmm. you're just exposed and most of us will well sometimes yeah i don't know sometimes it's like oh, I really see your pain. I really see your vulnerability. I just think you're wrong, you know? Mm. Like, that's my experience. Brutal. Brutal. We, um, on Sunday, 
we had uh, a, in our meeting uh, like a musical prayer time in the Taizé tradition. And Zach Agoff, um, whose idea it was, talked about Jesus's vulnerability. In the middle of the meeting, he invited us to pray around the cross, which was laid on the floor as as like a tangible symbol of Jesus's vulnerability. Um, you know, meeting us, meeting us in all of our pain and grief. And um, we had just had a shooting in South Philly mm. that um, the night before. And I don't even think I told you guys this. My son Zach works right there at the Wawa. Oh wow! Right mm. where it. Right, right, uh, you know, a block from where it happened and, you know, everybody was running down the street. Um, but he was in California at the time and or else he would have been there. He always works on Saturday nights. That's scary, Rich. Yeah. So I was really feeling that. And um, someone in our meeting knew somebody who was, was died. Mm. Um, so I could just picture as we were like, as we were sitting or laying around the cross um which was kind of unusual for us to do that like such an embodied kind of prayer um i just was like like i was i was fighting tears and i kept thinking why am i fighting these tears why don't i just let them like fall mm. like this is the time like jesus is being vulnerable like why can't i just be totally vulnerable here um so i was feeling that that tension and that that struggle and but appreciating the invitation from Jesus mm. totally and when we and when we offer our own vulnerability uh, to others I think it is uh, a way that Jesus love is incarnated in us and through us because mm. um, you can't really <laughs> You can't really have the love of Christ or the spirit of Jesus without vulnerability. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me, Johnny, that you got that feedback because the gift of you sharing yourself in that way connects to other people's humanity. And I think the more we can connect to one another's humanity, um, Jesus meets us right there. Because that literally is God made flesh to meet us right there in our humanity. What a vulnerable thing for Almighty God to do. Mm. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We are so glad you're part of our community and we want to keep you connected. You can do that by writing to us at Resist and Restore Podcast at circleofhope.net. We'd love to hear from you. We'll feature you on Talkback when you do. You can share money with us. Go to circleofhope.church and find the giving tab to do that. You can also share this podcast around on social media or just directly with friends who would be blessed by it. And while you're doing that, subscribe to the podcast and also give it a high review. That'll help other people listen to it as well. Thanks so much for listening. Glad you're a part of our community. Hey, y'all. I'm so glad to have my friend Bishop Ken Myers on our show. He has, you know, Ken and I met through an online community um, through 
can we say this? Can we say we met through the R Christianity subreddit? Is that allowed? Yes, absolutely. And we, there's a whole uh, Facebook group ecosystem that uh, that we um, met on. We've met in person in Philadelphia as well. And I've been influenced um, by Ken in many ways. So I'm excited to introduce him to you. Um, Ken, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. You wrote two books that I thought were really interesting. You've written more than two, but the two books that I want to focus on in this interview are the first one's called Salvation and How We Got It Wrong. And the second one is called Let's Talk About Hell. Um, so let's start with Salvation. Does that sound good? You bet. So this book is it's essentially a correspondence between you and someone else. And you unpack, and this really happened in real life? No, no, this is, so Anselm wrote a book in the 1100s called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And he wrote it. With the same kind of correspondence. Exactly. So I just mimicked, since this is kind of a counter to that book, I kind of mimicked what he did. It's very good. So it's, I, it's, I even name I even named the other character Anselmo. Oh, there we go. That's right. You did. <laughs> so let's just start with the basics. When we say salvation, what do we mean? What is salvation? See, that's that's a, a great question. Um, I think if you ask your typical modern American Protestant Christian, what is salvation? Their answer would have something to do with when I die, I go to heaven. Right. And that that's pretty much the, the essence of, of salvation for them. I, I would argue that biblically and historically, that's not what salvation is. Salvation is being brought into unity and into oneness with God, being brought into a, a, a close relationship to the point that we are being transformed into his image Salvation is being made like God. Salvation is being made like God. And, and being brought into union with him. And then that union, is that connected to atonement? That What is atonement in uh, relationship to salvation? Yeah, yeah. So, so, again, popular American Christianity sees the atonement as something like... Um, God was so ticked off with the world that he really wanted to just destroy it. But at the same time, he loved the world, so he couldn't let himself destroy it. But something had to be done, and somebody had to pay a price. So Jesus came to suffer the wrath of the Father so the Father could forgive us. And, and that's that that stems from... Uh, Calvinism and before Calvin from Anselm and before Anselm, Augustine somewhat. But but that idea uh, is, is what atonement has come to mean. In my, if, if you say Christ atoned for our sins, that's where a typical uh, modern American Christian goes. Like, oh, he paid my debt. He took my punishment. That's not what atonement means at all. Atonement means to be brought into unity with. At one meant, some people say. Atonement, exactly. Which goes back to what I was saying about salvation. Salvation is union with God. So most kind of American evangelicals would say salvation is being saved and going to heaven. And then atonement is God had to pour out wrath and then Jesus absorbed it and kept us 
Jesus took the bullets instead of us getting them, right? Exactly. So that's penal substitutionary atonement is really that theory. Precisely. Jesus was our substitute for God's punishment. Exactly. And do you think that's the basic, that's what Anselm is bringing to us? Not, not really Anselm. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, solidify until about 500 years later with John Calvin. Um, so John he, Calvin does PCA, penal, penal substitution atonement. He does, and, and even more so Calvinists who are his followers do. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a particularly Calvinist doctrine. Having said that, it has permeated into, a, into the American Christian culture so much so that people go, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Calvinist, but they embrace penal substitutionary atonement. You know, I think that one of the reasons we're so influenced by it is there are so many songs and worship songs that reinforce this point, like the, the PCA or penal substitutionary atonement is in these songs, right? In Christ alone, till on that cross is Jesus guide, the, the, the wrath of God was satisfied for yeah. every sin on him was laid, right? And so you sing it and then it's in your head. It's like a jingle. And then all of a sudden, that's your theology. Exactly. That's what music does. Uh, the, 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 the great um, arch heretic um, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, what was his name? I did just slip my, my brain. The heretic um, at Nicaea. Yeah. Um, St. Nicholas stood against him. Arius. Arius. So Arius was more known as a songwriter than a preacher. Oh, interesting. His songs, his songs crept into churches where he would never be allowed to speak, never be allowed to preach, but his songs crept in. And, and so heretical wrote, songs crept in. Exactly. One of one of the great famous songs that he wrote has the line, there was a time when the sun was not. And they were singing that in church, although it was completely <laughs> contrary to their theology. And you're absolutely right. We do that. We, oh, that's a catchy tune. Let's sing that. And we don't even think about the, the theology behind it. So uh, in a lot of uh, earlier, uh, what I would call gospel songs, from the late 1800s, the early 1900s, which were heavily influenced the Baptist and, and non-denominational cultures. Same thing, man, that just permeates a lot of that music. He paid a debt I did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. It, it's all about Jesus all in there. substituting himself to take our punishment or to pay our debt. And that's simply just not it's not what the ancient church believed and it's not what the Bible teaches. I love the style of writing in your book, this correspondence that you're mimicking from Anselm. To me, the satisfaction theory of atonement, which is what I would call Anselm's, at least in my understanding, feels more poetic and descriptive, whereas penal substitution feels formulaic. Like this is how the cross worked. But it seems to me like we took Anselm's image and then translated it into like a systematic theology. Like, I don't know if it's, I, I think, it's, what do you think about that? I think that, I think that's somewhat true, but Anselm. So, so how do I say this? Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, at the turn of the millennium, Anselm developed a doctrine of, as you 
called it satisfaction. Right. But what he said in that was it still had to do with repayment. God had his honor stolen from him in the fall. And we stole it. We, you know, humanity stole, we snuck into God's garden and stole his honor. Mm -hmm. So even if Anselm said, even if we repaid it a hundred percent, we still besmirched the honor of God here. Here's a hundred percent of it back, but I've still dishonored God. So the debt can never be paid. So Anselm says, God becomes man in Christ in order to restore that honor to God, because a, a, a regular human couldn't do it. So God as man has to do it. So, so, if you, if you look, it's not quite the same as Calvin's penal substitutionary atonement, but it, it's, it's there. It's, it's there a little bit, this idea of— It influences it, certainly. It, it absolutely—if absolutely, if there had not been Anselm, there wouldn't be Calvin to follow him. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Some people will read the scripture and see some case for the substitution. What do we miss when we take passages that seem to suggest this? Um, and then say, well, there you go. That's Calvin. There's, there's penal substitutionary atonement. Right, right. Substitution is in the scriptures. Christ definitely substituted himself for us in a rescue operation to save us from sin and death, uh, something that we couldn't do on our own. But that substitution had nothing to do with placating an angry God. Right, it right. Had to do, it had to do with... Uh, I don't know. You're probably, I don't know if you're old enough to have grown up on the stories I grew up on, but we had uh, Billy Goat Gruff mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the, the, the troll under the bridge that wouldn't let anybody pass. And the, the, the one little goat tries to and gets run off by the troll. And next, same thing happens. And finally, the strong goat comes. He's a substitute. Yes. He's a champion. A, a champion is a substitute. So Christ steps in like a champion for us, not not to put himself between the anger of God and us, the wrath of God and us, but in order to reconcile us to the love of the Father. That makes sense to me. So, so it's not a substitution for punishment. Exactly. From God. It's not punishment. It's not a substitution for punishment. You talk about how our understanding of Christianity and of atonement and of salvation is largely informed by the West. How does the Eastern end of Christianity view atonement? And why is it so different than what we consider our foregone conclusions to be? Like people have in in the West, this is how it works. This is manifestly biblical. This is how it is. Why does the East conclude differently? Or how do they conclude? That's a great, that's a great three-hour-long discussion you just brought up. Um, first of all, why why is East different? There are a whole lot of reasons to to give it some shorthand. I would say the East is different because it was never shaped by Augustine's theology, and later by Anselm's theology. Um, the East commits itself more to being shaped by the patristics by the early three or four, five centuries of of Christianity. Uh, Thomas Oden was a Methodist theologian. Um, I I admired him a lot. Um, 
Thomas Oden wrote a three-volume systematic theology that I would recommend anyone interested in theology getting. Um, and it's immersed, it's immersed in the early church fathers and the theology of the, of the first few centuries. And Odin said that he would like on his tombstone for it to say, here lies Tom Odin. He taught no new thing. Mm. Well, that's the East for you. The East, although Odin was Methodist, that's the East. The East says, we're not into novelties. We're not into change. Uh, if, if we're going to make a change, it's going to take us a thousand years to make it. Right. So, so the East, Eastern Christianity has held on to the earlier teachings of the church and hasn't evolved as much as Christianity in the West. And I actually, I actually believe it's much more um, holistic right. Christianity than what we end up with. That's beautiful. So as we're both in the Western tradition, you're an Anglican bishop. I'm an Anabaptist pastor. Um, so we've uh, reformed, as it were, even from Catholics, but we can still be influenced by Eastern thought. And I mean, I would welcome people to study Eastern Orthodox Christianity and allow it to influence us because we don't need to live as if we're, uh, there, th- that there's, that we're still split, that there's still a schism between us. True. True. And, and I, I, I would encourage all of your listeners to, to begin exploring some of the riches of, of that side of Christianity. I agree. I, I hope I hope that we can offer more resources. And if you have resources that we can use regarding this, we'd love to hear them. We'll post put them in our show notes. You don't have to recite them now. We can get them later from you. You have this interesting idea in the book on salvation where you say there's a difference between being saved from and being saved to. We've already said that Salvation isn't just being saved from hell, saved from punishment. What does being saved to mean? If I'm a drowning man, I'm in the river and I'm drowning and somebody throws me a life ring and pulls me in. They've saved me from drowning. They've saved me from being swept away by the river. But when I get out and on the bank of the river, I still have my debts. I still have my disease. I still have my family problems. I still don't have a job. I still, I I may not be in great condition once I've been pulled out of the river. People tend to think of, in modern Christianity, tend to think of salvation as being saved from hell. If you'll just pray this prayer, or if you'll believe the right thing, then when you die, you won't go to hell. You'll go to heaven. I would suggest that's pulling a guy out of the river, but that's, he's not being saved to anything. What true salvation is biblically is, as I said before, being brought into union with God, relational union with God, and therefore being transformed by that union. And so you see things in the scripture like uh, Paul saying, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Nevertheless, it's not you who works, it's God who works in you. You see uh, the book of Romans mm. saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, John, uh, in the gospel of John, Jesus speaks of, of uh, not that we will inherit eternal life, but that we have inherited eternal life through Christ. It's something 
now. It's, it's something that we experience in the here and now. And the more we're drawn into union with God, the closer we become to him, the more like him we become. Absolutely. Then, 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 then we're in, that's what salvation is, which yes, it ultimately means complete restoration, body, soul, and spirit for eternity. It means quote unquote heaven, but really what we're talking about is some heaven on earth because of our union with God. And I believe ultimately in the transformation of, of, of the earth itself. Uh, Absolutely. So being the power of God. Being saved too is you're not just being saved from the river, right? You're being clothed and blessed and transformed, and your life exactly. is changing. Exactly. You know, the, it, it, your if we think the only purpose of the cross is to save us from hell, we have a lot of life to do nothing with. <laughs> if all we're doing is being saved from death, you know, right. um, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain is Christ is a big part of that verse. You know, there's a lot of work to do, transformative work right here. And, you know, if we think we're just being saved from hell, why should I care about creation? Why should I care about the planet? Why should I care about all these current problems, you know? And I think we actually see that in a lot of contemporary Christian understanding of the world, and it reflects their values, you know? So our, our theology and our soteriology, which are theology of salvation, affects how we live, actually. It's not just Absolutely. something that's distant. It affects our, our ethics today. Absolutely. So even if you're listening and you're thinking, well, this seems fairly abstract, it's not. It actually affects what we do now, how we minister now to our neighbors. You know, um, I can't give you the reference right now. I'll mm-hmm. say like, like Paul does. Somewhere it is written. Um, Paul says... Christ in you, the hope of glory. If if glory means, which it does, the radiant presence of God Almighty, Paul says that the hope of that, the hope of glory is Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in us. So we're not just saved. It's not escapism. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, but I'm going to at least point out the rabbit trail, the escapism of popular eschatology as well. Dispensationalism, the rapture is going to happen any minute and get us out of here rather than transform the world by by Christ in us. So salvation, eschatology, all of it's tied together, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live our lives bringing the kingdom of God, expanding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Absolutely. So it definitely affects how we live right now. Before we get to the next section, if someone were to just say, and you kind of answered this already, but I, I, I want to make it clear to our listeners. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus die? Did Jesus have to die? How do you respond to that? Um, I think, I think, uh, previous question is why did why did Jesus have to become man why why did the incarnation happen and and that is to show us the father um man when you look at the old testament and, and I'm, I'm totally for yes the old testament is the inspired word of god but when you look at the old testament it's people grappling with their understanding of of who this god is and you see things in the old testament that are attributed to god 
that you go, oh, well, that's certainly not like Jesus. Jesus came to show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, he is the express image of the invisible God. So why did he come to earth to begin with to say, hey, this is what God is really like. Not the thing that you've depicted, not the angry man with a, with a club waiting to smack you when you do something wrong, but a reconciling, loving, forgiving God. So God becomes man to reveal himself truly to us. He dies on the cross not to appease the Father, not to set himself between us and the Father. He dies on the cross as a, as, as a God-man to defeat death, to, to crush death and sin. And when he rose from the grave, he rose victorious over death and sin and gave us the down payment of that, gave us the hope that we too will defeat sin and death in, in, in the days to come. Jesus died to defeat death and has given us an inspiration, the down payment to participate today in combating death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, right? So it's, it's, it's destroyed. But now when we see it in our society, we should be active agents against it. Right. And so this, this, this relates, it relates to all of our ethics. Do you want to say something? Yeah. Let me give you a, a, this is going to be really fast. A a four point process. Something is promised. Uh, Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's promised way back in the garden. It's promised. Something happens definitively at the cross. Jesus defeated Satan. And then yet we look around and think, well, wait, there's death. There's sin. We're still dealing with it because point three, what happened provisionally, what was promised, what happened definitively now has to work itself out in us, in the church, in the world. So Paul says in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace shall very soon crush Satan beneath your feet. So what happened definitively in Christ happens progressively in us. And then the fourth point is finality. Uh, At the end, all things will, will arrive at their teleos at their, at their goal and at their perfection, that is what we are working toward as we look for the eschaton. Beautiful. Um, I want to go back just for a second. Um, and, and I think you explained this. God became man to show us the father because there have been, and, and this is still the case. You know, I, I want our listeners to hear what you're saying. We understand the, the Old Testament depicts the same reconciling God that Jesus is. But we misunderstand that when we read the Old Testament. So we are not understanding the scriptures. It's not a problem with the Old Testament. It's a problem with us. Yes. That's just, I, I want to make that clear. Yes. That, And so now we can read the Old Testament just like Jesus did, just like Paul did, in light of who Jesus is. Absolutely. And then see, truly, like I believe that the prophets that Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses and so on saw God in the same way that we see God now. I think that's what brings Isaiah's and Jeremiah's lamentation. I think that's in the spirit of it. The eternal enduring of God's love 
is expressed as a Christian, I would say fully in Jesus, but that's still, that tradition is still there. It's Um, still there. It's still there. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with JB Phillips. Um, There's a, there's a new Testament called, we call it the the Phillips translation. That's not what it's called, but JB Phillips is the translator. And, and he took uh, the, the first chapter of Hebrews and translated it in times past in bits and pieces, God revealed himself to our ancestors. But now he has fully revealed himself through his son. So I would say, yeah, what you're saying is true. Moses, Elijah, the prophets, Abraham, yep. they knew God. They encountered God. They had a relationship with God. But what they saw was in bits and pieces. So Jesus comes to bring the full picture, to put the jigsaw puzzle together, and 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 he must become the lens through which we read the Old Testament. Absolutely. That makes so, so much sense to me. Um, we, we already kind of got into some stuff, so I hope that we can connect the basic point of your book on salvation with your point on uh, your book on hell, because I do think that they're connected. Um, So let's talk about hell. That's the title of your book, but let's do it here too. You begin by giving us three views of hell. Um, Can you run through those quickly for us? Yeah. Um, Let me, let me tell you how that book came to be written. Yeah, go ahead. Let's hear that. You're absolutely right about, about the, um, it's a sequel to the salvation book. When I would go and do seminars on my salvation book, which that's what I do. I travel and teach and do seminars. Uh, hint, hint, have me come to a seminar sometime. But, <laughs> but when I go do seminars on the book, every single time without fail, someone would raise a hand and say, well, what about hell? I'm like, oh, no, I'm not here to talk about that. No. Well, what about hell? Over and over. So I realized, oh, I have to answer this question. So that's why the, the book, what, let's talk about hell, came out of the book, Salvation and Hell. And this came out just last year, right? 2021, is that right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. It was fairly it was recent. Yeah, it's recent. Um, um, so yeah, the, the three, three views, views of hell. First of all, the, the, the view, I'm, I'm not going to dismiss it, but I'm not going to address it at length, is annihilationism. Um, when a person stands before God on judgment day and does not, is not found in Christ, they are simply done away with. They are brought to nothing. They are, they cease to be. The judgment is uncreation. They become uncreated. That view is, I have, I have good friends who embrace that view and, and it's a better view, I think, than the next one, but, I don't think it holds as much merit or um, theological validity as the third view. Okay, so the first view, annihilation. The second view, ECT, eternal conscious torment. And that view says, if you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are not in Christ, doesn't matter how good of a person you are. Doesn't matter, you know, that you've lived your life Christ-like, selflessly, if you haven't said the right thing, been baptized, said the right prayer, whatever, when you stand before God on judgment day, he is going to sentence you to 
not a thousand years, not 10,000 years, not 10 million, not a hundred billion years, forever, for eternity, into a torturous, flaming fire. That, that the God who is Jesus is going to condemn most of the world, most of humanity, to an eternity of torture. That is the second view. That's the view I was raised in. That's the view that I taught forever. That's the view that most of American Christianity thinks is the view, and, and let's not even talk about anything else. The third view has a lot of different names. I'm going to call it Purgatorial Universal Reconciliation, P-U-R. That view briefly says, first of all, we're not talking about literal flames of fire here, but that view says hell has a purpose, and it is not one of torture, torment, or eternity. The purpose of it is to purge, to purify us. Jesus said everyone must be salted with fire. That includes you and me. I mean, absolutely. We're going to get a little fire here, there, somewhere. Um, but, but, but the idea is then that the heart of God is reconciliation. God is love, and and He's not creating this place to torture people for eternity for a. a a life not lived right for 60 years, you know? Mm-hmm. No, the purpose of hell is to purify, to burn away, to remove the dross so that what is pure can remain. What's what's keeping this person from being reconciled to the love of God? Whatever it is, let's, let's take that out. Let's burn that away so that they can purely, freely embrace the love of God. It sounds like your your idea of being saved to something, as opposed exactly. to just being saved from something. Exactly. So three views: annihilationism, eternal conscious torment, and purgatorial universal reconciliation. I will say, and I I may get in trouble for saying this: the God he described that would punish us eternally is not one worthy to be worshipped. I mean, it sounds like an irrational God that. For an for for what will become an infinitesimally small amount of time, my life, and this is how they think about it, Ken. Because I I I, I did a thought crime because their theology isn't even isn't even material. Because I thought the wrong things, because I believed the wrong things, God's going to punish me eternally. That sounds horrifying. It is horrifying. Yeah, totally. It, it, it's horrifying, and it's completely antithetical to everything Jesus taught us about forgiveness. Absolutely. It's like, it's like, here's what I'm telling you guys, but this is not really how my father in heaven is. He's, he's going to torture and torment. He's unrelenting. He's never going to let it go, but you guys need to forgive 70 times seven. Totally. I mean, in the old Testament, they say God's love endures forever, not God's wrath endures forever. Absolutely. The thing that endures for, I mean, it doesn't make any, I mean, God's love has to eclipse my sin, my wrongdoing, what I need to be purified of. God's love has to. The third view, the one you hold, you, 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 the way you describe it is by describing God. You say God is love. God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is unchanging. 
Let's talk about how those characteristics help us understand how, how we are reconciled to God, why it isn't an eternal conscious torment, and why there is a universal salvation for everybody. What is it about God? Okay, so, so first of all, before I answer that, let me say what I'm saying is not new. It's not like Ken made this up or no. it's been around the last hundred years. This, this is a strong belief in the early church era. Pre-Augustine, this was the dominant view of, of, of the end. It's a um, strong belief in the epistles of Paul. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I really don't. And you, and you talk about this in your book, and I really like it. Paul never talks about hell. Who talks about hell? Time. Yeah. Who talks about hell a lot? Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. Exactly. But Paul offers a universal salvation. Right. In my Absolutely. reading. Absolutely. Okay. So you were asking about God. God, God yeah. His nature, his personality. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Lamentations 3, the steadfast, you just quoted it, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mm. mercies never come to an end. Um, the Book of Wisdom. There's a good song, by the way. Well, um, you love all things that exist. This is Wisdom chapter 11. You love all things that exist and detest nothing that you have made. You spare all things, for they are yours, O Lord, you who love the living. Um, therefore, you correct little by little those who trespass. This is from the book of wisdom. Um, John chapter one, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not of good people, not of believers, not of righteous, takes away the sin of the world. For God, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world um, over and over and over, you see in Scripture this depiction of a God who is full of love, who is love, who is, pardon the phrase, hell-bent on rescuing us Absolutely. From, from sin and death, and has come into the world to save the world and to have mercy on all. Romans chapter 11, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Uh, Paul, you, you said you were convinced he's a universalist. How about this one in Romans? Um, for as in Adam all die, all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the heart of God, the heart of God is reconciliation, reunion, sharing of love. I love this one from, from Colossians, this, uh, Colossians 1. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things holds together. The head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. This idea that God reconciles everything unto himself. Jesus is above it all. You know, of yeah. uh, to me, of course, we're all going to be saved. Like, that's the beauty of the cross. The whole world is being reconciled. That's why it connects to your first book, the first book right. that I talked to you about. It's right. this whole holistic, transformative experience yeah. of salvation. When we make it individual and God is saving me from hell, then you have this whole other way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're thinking in a whole different way. Can we keep going? Um, sure. 
we have this similar to how we have ideas about salvation that are um, really just implanted in our heads from songs, from Calvinist theology, from popular theology. We also have an image of hell that's like it's caverns of fire and there's demons with horns and torture. Where did we, I mean, the Bible is not, even when Jesus talks about hell, it's not that descriptive. Why do we have this image? Where did this come from? We have it because Dante was a fabulous poet. We get it from Dante. We get it from medieval dramas that that were meant to scare the hell out of people. Um, it's not biblical at all. I, one of the fun things that I that I do when I do a seminar on the book is um, poll the people in the in the in the group in the congregation or in the audience. Um, what does the Old Testament say about hell? I begin. And the answer is nothing, literally nothing. From Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, not one thing is said about hell. Oh, okay, well then, what did Paul say about hell? And all of his epistles, nothing. nothing. What? How about the book of Acts? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a book full of evangelistic sermons by the apostles who are going to convert the world. What did they have to say about hell in their sermons? Nothing. John says nothing. James says nothing. Peter says that Christ went to the place of captivity and preached to those that were in prison. That's the only thing Peter says about it. Jesus is the one who talks about hell. Nobody else. And what Jesus says about hell has nothing to do with a place of everlasting torture from God the Father. Um, he uses a word, w- one of the words he uses, he uses the word Sheol or, or Hades in the Greek, which simply means place of the dead, where, where dead people are, mm-hmm. the dead, the state of being dead. But the, 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 his favorite word to use was Gehenna. Yep. And, and Gehenna is literally a place. It's a valley outside Jerusalem. It's literally a place on this earth. It, it's, it's, it's real estate. It's geography. When In Jesus, Arabic, the word is gohennem for hell. It's like literally the same word. So, so when Jesus says this, he's pointing over to this valley, and everybody who hears him mm-hmm. knows this valley. I mean, it would be like, it would be like me saying, um, you know, you're going to spend some time in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It, it's like, oh, I know where that is. And Jesus uses the imagery of this accursed valley. Isn't it like telling you you're, you're going to spend some time in East Texas? Isn't that the hell of Texas? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Laredo. You're going to spend some time in Laredo. <laughs> so, so, so Gehenna, the first mention of Gehenna in the Bible is that's where uh, Israel, when it apostatized from, from Jehovah, and they set up worship of Molech and offered their children in this burnt fire to this false god, that's where it happened. And from that time forward, that, that it became an accursed place. It, it became synonymous with a garbage pile. I mean, mm-hmm. your, life, your life is going to be a dump pile without God transforming you. It's, it's not a threat of torture. 
It's not a threat of everlasting condemnation. He's just saying, how's this working out for you? Here's your life with God, the kingdom of God, the blessings of God, the joy of the Lord. Here's your life without God. It's a crapshoot. So let's combine these two ideas, salvation and hell mixed together nicely, um, or your ideas of them. God's judgment in purgatory, judgment might not be the right word, but in purgatory, what's happening to us if, is if, that. If you, if you define judgment, it is the right word. Go ahead. Tell me. We've given it the wrong definition. If you go before a judge, you're, you're the guilty, you're, you're the, uh, the, the, the party that has been defrauded and you go before a judge, what you're wanting that judge to do is to make things right. True judgment is setting things right. What God does when he judges is he makes things the way they ought to be. Like Julian of Norwich said, and all shall be well and all shall be well mm. and all manner of things shall be well. That's what judgment is. Judgment is God fixing things. So continue. Yes. So our, just for a moment, we have an adversarial legal um, legal system. And then we also have a, uh, a a carceral state that doesn't do the same kind of correction. So I think just for Americans, how it works here when we hear judgment and judges feels a little bit different. It would be nice if when a plaintiff brought their accusation against the person that restoration and healing happened as opposed to yeah. just punishment. Exactly. If, people, if we actually got better, you know, a rehabilitative system is better than a punitive system. So it, again, these things connect to our real life right here. They, they totally do. They totally do. And, and ideas have consequences. Absolutely agree. You know, so, so our theology, even, even people, you know, walking down the street that don't have a clue who some of these theologians are, they are influenced by absolutely. Even if, not, even if they're not Christian, they're influenced by the by the the mindset of that theology. It has permeated our whole culture. So God is making things right in purgatory, similar to how God is making things right in us through the cross, and yes. then employing us as agents to defeat death too. Yes. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes there's pain involved. You know, uh, I go to the doctor and he says, buddy, we got to, we got to set that broken leg. Okay. Bite on this bullet. It hurts, but it fixes me. Um, Yeah. Physicians in the ancient world are people permitted to cause pain in order to bring healing, (laughs) Right. you know? Um, And so I think that's important for us to understand that when we're going through our process of becoming whole, even now, it's going to hurt. As yeah. we repent of things like uh, um, patriarchy, white supremacy, you know, homophobia, ableism, it's going to hurt. Yes. Um, it might hurt us, but we are being made whole as well. Exactly. The, the imagery I've used uh, when I've taught on this is, is um, a person has cancer. Mm. The, uh, the oncologist doesn't hate the person. They hate the cancer. They hate the disease. God doesn't hate the person. He hates the disease that is wasting away, the spiritual disease of sin that is wasting away that person. And so he's committed to burning it away to make that person whole. Um, Mm. Just like a doctor or a surgeon is committed. I've got to cut this out or I have to burn this out in order to make you whole. That's what God does with sin in our lives all the way up to and through hell itself. Excellent. 
So I, I think that in these two books, which I hope you'll, where can they get these books? Amazon. You can go to Amazon and look for Ken Myers and buy the books, support him. They really change how a lot of us in the West understand Christianity. Um, so I hope, I hope so. that these ideas can keep spreading. I hope so. You could also, a person, if one, someone wants to, they can go to kennethmyers.com and click on books and it'll take you to everything I've written. Excellent. So go to kennethmyers.com. We'll link that in the show notes. Thanks again, Ken. This is an enlightening conversation. I really hope it blesses people. Um, and for those of us that grew up with these ideas about these different ideas about salvation and hell, I think you bring an important perspective. So I hope that that can get seeded into our, uh, into our territory, that these ideas can influence as well. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you. I can't wait to see you in person again. Yeah, we have to do it and, soon. And hey, everybody, buy Johnny's book. I just, <laughs> I just read it last week, and it's a fabulous book. Well, thank you very much, Kenneth. You're welcome. This last section is spiritual show and tell, and we offer it vulnerably um, because we hope that listening to this podcast nourishes your soul. So, um, pastors, what is feeding you this week? We should have prepared for this. <laughs> I, I was just yes. going to say, I don't know if we want to keep this part in, but it's worth noting, like, it feels hard sometimes yeah. to reflect on what is nourishing because there is so much um, heartache and grief and frustration with yeah. what's going on in the world. Yep. Well, I, I have I have something, but I was hesitating so much because it feels extremely vulnerable and I don't I don't know how to make it sound nourishing because it sounds terrible, but I'm just going to Let's hear it. I want to hear it. Offer it. But I had a in that moment of Taize worship on the floor there and uh, by the cross, I had this vision of Jesus um, with his hands extended and they were still bleeding, just bleeding out. And I and I felt like um, it was this met it like like he he was showing me like I'm I'm grieving. I feel the I feel this pain. I am grieving with you all. And um that has been nourishing to my soul because I think that's really true that God is grieving with us and and still like actively um at work um among us to to see the pain, to acknowledge and recognize the pain and to feel it. And um, I'm just so grateful that we have a God who's like not not removed from it, but um, really in it with us. Was that too much? No, it was good. Mm-mm. Finding inspiring Anabaptists near me has been nourishing my soul. So there's this group called Hagar's Voice that my friend Angela Lamb is in, as well as Danielle Strickland and some others who are looking to empower victims of abuse, especially women who have been victims of sexual abuse in churches. So in light of the sexual abuse allegations at Meeting House, 
and also the thousands of allegations in the Southern Baptist Church. I'm inspired by women Anabaptists specifically who continue to follow Jesus and continue to light the way, even though it's hard, even though there's hostility and difficulty and pain. And they inspire me because in my own pain, I, I need that kind of courage. So I would encourage you to follow Hagar's voice and see what they're up to. Julie was just talking about a podcast that they have. Is that right, Julie? Yes, but I want to offer a trigger warning. Um, they they did just start this podcast where they are um, interviewing uh, women who have experienced um, abuse in the church, and it sounds terrible, and it might be too much. It might not be um, good for everyone to listen to, but um, I, what I heard of it was actually really... Um, empowering and um, well, really well done because she's distilling out of um, these stories that uh, of tragic experiences, sk- like uh, skill and framework to like be able to see and analyze power in the church and take responsibility for like communal mm-hmm. uh, culture that allows for these things to happen and um, even ways for clergy and leaders to respond that are helpful and not continue um, and compound grief and trauma. So, yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy stuff, but um, I, I think it's full of really powerful wisdom. Sorry, I ended no, up talking good. That was more good. about, about your, yours. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. I hope you can do that. Um, but yeah. I'll also say one more thing about cool Anabaptists, because I want to just shout them out. Um, Anabaptism is 500 years old, which is pretty good. And I'm on this, com- this advisory group called Anabaptism at 500, and we're working on an Anabaptist study Bible. And I really like the cohort that I'm with. They're fun to talk to, and um, yeah, just thinking about the Bible together, thinking about what people want, and being a part of this project is super cool. So, um, and I guess one more thing. Um, I just got the uh, leader's edition of the Mennonite hymnal, which has this thing on it called the Pledge of Love, which is Mm. a way to offer communion. Rachel, you did this the other Sunday. Can you tell us about it? Oh, it was so beautiful, Johnny. I'm so grateful that you found it for us. Um, yes, it's, it's, a it's a litany, a liturgy for communion and it's, it, it's very engaging because, um, the leader is like, um, not only giving us scripture and the words of institution, but giving us a chance to commit to Jesus, our love to Jesus and to one another in, in like, like we're naming these ways, like with each other, with our neighbors. Um, so it was, re- it felt really powerful. We did it on on Sunday. Thank you. So that's what's up. How about you, Julie? Or was Hagar's voice yours? Well, no, I have another one. Go to ahead. Share. Let's keep it going. <laughs> uh, this is the season of at the time that we are recording this. This is the season of graduations and proms and. Um, end of the year celebration for students um 
And it has been nourishing my soul. I love looking at photos um, on social media of, of everyone dressed up, looking fancy. Um, my neighbor right on our block who, you know, I've uh, taken care of her when she was like three, you know, went to prom. And so we all gathered out there and had a whole big send off. And it was mm. just so fun. So beautiful. My own daughter just went through her eighth grade promotion ceremony this morning. I was all teary-eyed. I did not expect this, but I got so emotional when the students, different students that got up to speak, talked about meeting each other for the first time. Because this was a middle school uh, for seventh and eighth grade, and they've they've done middle school in the middle of a global pandemic. The first year was all virtual, so the the first student who spoke, he was talking about coming into eighth grade and meeting his fellow students for the first time. He said. You know, I spent a whole year looking at these black boxes with just your names. He said, I didn't even know what your voices sounded like because mm. so many of them only chatted in the in the chat. Um, and they spent a year like that. So just the power That's pretty of, cool, man. I know, the power of seeing them, like, glowing, celebrating each other, honoring each other, um, you know, naming how difficult it has been and what they have gone through and, and overcome uh, how they're feeling ready for high school because of what they've been like. It just was so beautiful. All, all of these milestones are nourishing my soul, especially um, given, you know, what we've all experienced over these last two years and the isolation and the loss and the separation during what would these kinds of communal milestones it just was such a gift like we were saying on our drive home like I'm so glad this got to be in person can you imagine which of course some kids can because last year it, it was happens. for them yeah exactly mm -hmm. virtual mm -hmm. virtual graduations etc so all of these celebrations are nourishing my soul uh, thanks for listening. I hope that you listeners are finding things that nourish your soul. And if if you're not sure what those are, uh, take a few minutes to ponder and kind of search, search through your memory of today, of last week. Uh, find the good and hold on to it. Elongate it in your heart and your mind. Um, in that process... Uh, God, God meets us, and it, it grows our hearts to hold on to the gratitude. So I hope you can do that today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>